The following is a Cartoonerific Studios presentation. Welcome to Cartoon Fun, it's Cartoonerific! Yeah! Welcome to the Cartoonerific Podcast, Classic Animated Cartoons. My name is Brian Mitchell, and I am your host. You know, normally when we do these podcasts, I'm talking about classic animated cartoons, and something they should be focusing on more is independent animation, meaning an individual or a group of individuals that do a film and they make it personal and they they put it out there into festivals and stuff like that. And uh, the focus hasn't really been on that. And I apologize for that. Uh, but we should be doing more of that because that's where uh, some original ideas really come from. Not to say that original ideas don't come out of the studio process, but the uh, studio feature films are normally produced anywhere from 50 to 100 to $200 million. And so... You know, they're taking a big risk with that money, putting it out there, because there's no guarantee that uh, a studio is going to make the money back. And but so they're not willing to take the risks like maybe he was making a small film who can afford to take the risks, even though they you know, they're not backed by a major studio. But they're taking the risk because they want to make the film. They want to make the film. And regardless of whether it makes money or not, it's a big difference. And so you get. Uh, a lot of creative things that come out of that, out of uh, individuals that just want to make a film and they want to make it their own way. And they don't want to be influenced by things that have been done before. They want to kind of go down their own route. And I know it's inevitable. You're always going to be influenced by somebody, but at least you're doing something with your vision. It's uh, one voice making a decision and producing the film, putting it out there. And there, there are many independent uh, filmmakers out there. There's Patrick Smith, and you have Bill Plimpton, and you know the Hubbleys, uh, John Hubbley, who used to uh, work at UPA, and they were doing some very, very different types of animation at UP, UPA Studios in the 50s. But even then, they had to have a character uh, that would kind of sustain the studio, and that was Mr. Magoo and Gerald McBoing Boing. So they would do that stuff, and then they would try to do some individual things on the side, some experimental things. And so, very important studio. Uh, but even at Disney, they used to experiment, and Ward Kimball was the experimenter, and he did a lot of uh, weird and wonderful films over there. But they still had to kind of fit into the Disney mold. Um, so that's what I'm saying. With independent film, somebody who's producing film totally free of the studio system, they can do whatever they want. And whether the idea is good or it's okay or it's great, basically there's no influence from anybody. They are making the film. They are making the decisions on how it's going to look and what the narrative is going to be and the music and all that other stuff. And they're doing it because they want to do it. Like I said, we should be focusing more that on that. And I will be uh, bring people on 
independent filmmakers to talk about certain things from time to time. Today, we have an independent filmmaker. He's done a wonderful film. He's worked in the studio system. He's worked for MTV. He's worked for Disney. He's worked for uh, Cartoon Network. He's done a lot of different things. And his style is uh, very personal, uh, as evidenced by his uh, film, his award-winning film that he did a few years back called New York City Sketchbook. Uh, he's a, a wonderful talent, and he's going to be on in a few minutes. His name is Willie Hartland, and we'll be talking with him right after this. You're listening to the Cartoonerific Podcast, classic animated cartoons with your host animator, Brian Mitchell. And now it's time for our special Cartoonerific guest. Well, the person that we have on today, he I worked with him at a studio, believe it or not, in Newark, New Jersey, we're working on a uh, feature film called Everyone's Hero. And uh, it, originally it was called Yankee Irving when we were working on it. And Christopher Reeve was the director of it. And it was a uh, interesting experience for us. And But uh, anyway, I was introduced to Willie, who uh, had a very unique drawing style. And he's uh, he's done some really interesting films over the years on his own while working in and out of the studio system because you know you have to you have to make some money somewhere and so he worked on uh, a number of things beavis and butthead and doug uh working within that studio environment and then in between he would work on all these different things and uh, i really loved some of the stuff he's very experimental in not just in 2d but he would work in clay animation and and cutouts and uh and then using uh, computer technology to kind of bring this all stuff together and uh make some wild and wonderful stuff please welcome the wonderful totally creative mr willie hartland hi willie how are you doing today hi brian i'm doing very well it's a real honor to be on your podcast uh cartoonerific and by the way yes um, i love those, those women who sing at the beginning of your show it must now they, they it must be expensive to have them come in every time and sing or do you do you, is that pre-recorded i, I don't want to know uh no they um, come they come in every single time and they they sing it and it sounds exactly the same every single time no it's yeah, of, of course it's pre-recorded yeah it's, okay but they there are where did you where did you get them? Because they're very gifted. It's it's actually it's a guy. It's one guy, and he did all the he did the yeah he did all the parts. Okay. Yeah, but uh, no, very talented. He did the whole thing. So yeah, a barbershop quartet type opening. I had a podcast uh, for about a year. It was called The Dope Sheet, and uh, I didn't have the budget for that. So I'm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we had a had a little bit of a budget, and uh, it kind of blew it <laughs> uh, for all because uh, th there's a lot of stuff that we've done that I've done, um, including mailbag and stuff like that, and so that was all kind of done, and it's just sitting in a uh, file folder, just waiting to be used. So that's uh, that's where that is. Let's let. Let's find out how'd you, uh, where'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? Let's start there. Up in uh, Washington D.C., I was born and raised in the nation's capital. Okay, and uh, 
and then I moved to New York City in 1984 after I graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design, also known as RISD. Okay, and uh, yeah. What, okay, so how did you? When did you decide that you wanted to do? Was there a decision made at a young age that you wanted to go into animation, or was this a? There was. There was. There was a few things that happened. One was, I think you'll find this very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there were a couple of things that happened. One is, I had an art teacher in high school who um, said, "Is there anything you want to learn about?" Uh, about you know, you know. Uh, and I said, yeah, I wanted, I want to learn about the animation. She said, well, I don't know anything about animation, but if, if you want to buy some books and, you know, um, I, I can sort of supervise you and you can, and she said, you know, you can, you can, you have, uh, next semester you can make a, a project, mm-hmm. uh, a class and you can do anything, work in any medium you want. And I said, well, I want to make an animated little short film. And so she, um, she, made me realize that this was something I could do and all I needed to do was get a book and start teaching myself how to do it. So that was one thing. Mm-hmm. And then the other was, you know, I used to watch like you did, we're the same generation. Mm-hmm. I used to watch, you know, the wonderful world of Disney and, and, um, um, and I remember watching, uh, there were a couple, sometimes they'd show a documentary on how the cartoons were made. Right. And, was found that so interesting was the cameraman at the animation stand putting the cell underneath the platen and then they'd sort of cut or dissolve to Donald Duck, you know, walking and then they'd freeze a frame, the background would move a fraction of an inch, and they'd put the next cell down. And I thought, Oh my God, this that just blew my mind. I said, <laughs> No, I want how to do that. Um there was also this is very interesting too. There was a um and this was all in the late 70s. There was an exhibit that Ward Kimball curated at the uh, Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Oh, called okay. Building Her Mouse. Hill at the Library of Congress. It was a, they, uh, and it was a, it, they had a, uh, uh, it was a gallery show that mm-hmm. Ward, Ward Kimball curated. You can Google this and you can see pictures of him at the, uh, the opening at the black tie reception. Wow. Um, and I saw this exhibit. And they had original artwork of the first time I'd seen original Disney art. Mm-hmm. And remember, before the internet, so there wasn't. A, it was hard to information about animation was hard to come by. There yeah. were not a lot of books. There was not so there. This in this exhibit, they had the original artwork. A lot of it was from like the Silly Symphonies. I remember seeing uh, Music Land, and I remember they had the artwork in these little galleries, and then they had the monitor. A video monitor on a loop playing the Silly Symphony cartoons. So you could, to your left, you could see the the original paintings, and then you could see the there's cartoon. There's the painting that was used in the cartoon, mm-hmm. and it, was, it just blew my mind. And that that really, um, I think after I saw that, I became really interested in animation. That might have led to me talking to my art teacher in high school and saying, "I want to learn about animation," because that exhibit was over the top of incredible and Ward Kimball curated it. Yeah. I think there was so that guy who, um, from Disney archives, Michael, somebody I was telling, I was talking to John Kanemaker about this. Okay. Uh, he told me, I think he mentioned Michael Barrier, but I could be mistaken, but I know it was Ward Kimball. Right. Was the main person that was very, very big. And you uh, might also, 
Michael Barrier did live in Washington D.C., so he may have had a he may have had a hand in it. So yeah, this he he probably did. I think that's what I remember Kane Maker saying. I could be wrong. That was very that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. That was that was pivotal. And then the other thing, uh, my father had read something about the uh, there were these two guys who were doing a book tour. Uh, and they were coming to Washington, and they were going to do a. Uh, they were going to talk about their book and show some clips from Disney feature films that they animated. Mm-hmm. And these two guys were Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson. Right. And my father took me to the Museum of Natural History in Washington D.C. Wow. And nobody knew who these guys were because the the book hadn't come out, and there wasn't really a lot of information if you didn't live. You know, if you were not, not in the business and you lived, you know, in Washington D.C. or somewhere, there was, it was hard to come by information. So they they had the, they did a talk, mm-hmm. and I went to this talk, and I was amazed, you know. And then they showed, they said, "Okay, here's a clip from the Jungle Book." And I remember specifically the Jungle Book was something they they uh, referred to a lot. Mm-hmm. That was so that was also just blew my mind. It was a, made a huge impression on me. Sure. Yeah, I think the well, the Jungle Book was an early impression on me, and uh, yeah, that was that came out in '67. That one, mm-hmm. you know, I was five. Yeah, you were around that age, and that for many big baby boomers on the cusp, like we are, that was a film many of us cite as uh, our first Disney film that we saw. Or yeah, remember seeing or an insp- heavy inspiration. Yeah. yeah. Did, were you into art before this? Were you? Were you? Draw- I was always a class artist, you know, growing all the way back to like first grade, and I mm-hmm. grew up in Washington D.C. You know, my parent. You know, we we were we had the Smithsonian. We have all these incredible uh, museums, um, right? For free to the you know they're they're paid. Uh, they're the Smithsonian is owned by the federal government, so our taxpayers, our tax dollars, pay for the these museums so they're free right. and you can go and you want so i used to go to to you know the national gallery of art and i'd go to the so i go to the hirshhorn i go to all these museums and i loved looking at art ever since i was a little kid and i um so it was clear early on in my life that i would that i would eventually become an artist you know right yeah and also i was very interested in magic this is something I think we may have talked about are these sort of precursors to animation. You'll, if you talk to animators, mm-hmm. they'll often mention ventriloquism, magic, and um, sometimes model railroading, model trains. Right. And these are the, the things that move and, and building these little worlds, and giving ventriloquism, bring, breathing life into a little puppet, making it talk, throwing your voice. Mm-hmm. Magic. Animation is magic. Um magic illusion all that all those things um i was very interested in as a little kid mm-hmm. and uh, uh my father worked for the federal government i used to go down and have lunch with him and he, he worked about a block from the white house and we would uh we would go he'd take me out for lunch and then whether we would take walk a few blocks to this kind of shady part of washington mm-hmm. where there was this place called al's magic shop <laughs> and Al Cohen was this guy, and he had he he ran this magic shop, and he became he was like a celebrity in Washington D.C. Politicians would go in there, everybody would go in there. Famous magicians would go in there. David Copperfield, everybody would go in there, mm-hmm. and he would perform the trick, and then 
you know, and then uh, and then he wouldn't tell you how it was done. If you wanted to know how it was done, you had to buy the trick. <laughs> there was always a gadget that was built into the trick, and I still have all these tricks that I, from when I was, uh, you know, like 10 years old, I, st- I have them in a drawer somewhere. That's pretty but, cool. Uh, so that was a big magic, yeah, and ventriloquism. Um, yeah. I, I, dabbled, sort of, I dabbled in all that. But. Yeah, yeah, so these things... You know, it's like that documentary 28 Up where they interview these British school children every seven years. And you can see when they're seven and then 14, you can see these little, there are these little hints or little things that they say that are, that are, are little um, hints or, or you can tell where, where they're going in their life based on what they said in the interview when they were seven. You know? Sure. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting if somebody did something like that. Yeah, it's, so uh, they they the died, but they, they it started in the late sixties, early seventies, and every day it went, it went to fourteen up, twenty one up, twenty eight up, mm-hmm. thirty five up, forty two up. I don't know what the last the last <laughs> installment was, but right. Yeah. So when you saw all this stuff, when you saw the the exhibit and Frank and Ollie coming to Washington, that yeah. set that set you on that path now. That you wanted yeah, to do then the I animation? Went, I, you know, I bought a Super 8 camera. Mm-hmm. I bought a Canon 10XL Super 8 camera with single frame capability. And then I bought a, uh, a thing that was called an Ox Supermation stand that my father bought for me. Wow. And I, I saved up my, you know, I was, I was delivering papers and cutting lawns. I didn't have, didn't have a lot of money, but I would save up and buy these things, you know, the camera, and then I bought a, and eventually I bought a projector. I could, I had the camera, and I had shot all these rolls of film. I couldn't see them, right? But I shot, and then eventually I saved up and I got a projector, so I could look at. It. Oh my god, this is look at all this animation I did, you know. And uh, that was the yeah. So that was the beginning. I just got so hooked. I mean, I had, I turned my whole bedroom into like a little animation studio and. Uh, I was nuts. I was just obsessed with animation in high school. And, um, uh, you know, and then when it came time to apply to art schools, I knew that RISD was one of the few art schools that uh, was offering animation classes, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's SVA and CalArts and a couple of others. And, um, yeah, there weren't a whole lot. Pratt, I think Pratt had a some sort of program. In Brooklyn, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Pratt, and you know, but but RISD was the top art school, and I, that, at least that that was what you know that was what I was told, and I and I and my parents didn't like the idea of living in New York City. It's right. funny because that's where I've, I've been here for forty years. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to say uh, New York City at that time was not the greatest. I mean, it's gotten better over the years, but that was a rough time well, the seventies and. It's a very yeah, there's a lot of crime in the seventies and in, into the early eighties, but yeah, uh, you know, um, so yeah, so anyway, so I ended up I got accepted at, at to the Rhode Island School of Design, and that was a uh, thank God because that was probably the only school uh, for me, and uh, got a lot out of it. I had wonderful professors there, and I I really they they at RISD they teach animation not as a trade. But mm-hmm. as a as a fine art, as a, they use, they they tr- they teach animation for personal expression, right? And so it's uh, 
it's a little bit like the experimental program CalArts uh, that was started by Jules Engel, and it's um, uh, so that was that was just it came as a bit of a shock to me when I got there. I didn't know that 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 they were going to teach animation like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that the films. I didn't know much about independent animated animation, but but I discovered that I really that that I responded to that approach, and I really um, it, I made some very good good films while I was at RISD. Mm-hmm. There was another book that I'm forgetting that was also that I, I I I remember too. I think it was in high school or maybe it was in my first year at RISD. There was this book called The Animation Book. It was written by Kit Laybourne. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I know you're right about Kit Laybourne. Um, the second author of that book, I don't recall, but yeah. Um, well, anyway, mm-hmm. it, was, it was, I think two, two, there were two, two guys who wrote it. And that book was one of the few books It came out. I think it was published in around 1980 and I still have my copy of it. But in that book, it taught it, they highlight a lot of the independent animators. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada and the United States and some in, in Europe. And I, that's when I first read about George Griffin and people like that. I'd seen a lot of independent um, animation as I was growing up. And so a lot of Hubley stuff. I saw. Yeah, the Hubley. Yeah. Jonathan um, um, Yeah, and a lot of it, I, a lot of those people ended up because there was no... You know, the thing is with independent animation, unless you're doing commercials or you're doing something as part of another film, it's hard, it's hard, it was hard back then to really make a living off independent film, you know, and or independent well, animation. Yeah, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, you're right. And you have to either have a, uh, you know, like in the case of the Hubleys, they were doing, uh, they were very successful doing uh, commercials. Mm-hmm. And um, and they the commercials finance their short films or so, um, and they, they had kind of a their goal their motto you know was to make a film here personal film here and they would just somehow find a way to get it made mm-hmm. or either have something going that's lucrative like that or you're a full time teacher a professor teaching animation. Yeah. Uh, you, then you get your sabbatical, you get your your summer off, your winter break, your spring break, and those, that's. Uh, you know, I've noticed that a lot of the independent animators today are often people who are teaching animation full time somewhere. So right. Um, yeah. So that's because uh, these films don't make any money, really. The independent short films they don't, but they they can lead to work mm-hmm. for you. And that's, I think that worked out for the Hubleys and many other independents, um, where it's the kind of work you want to do. And people will, if they, sometimes they can, somebody can see it and say, oh, that, that would be good for something we're doing, you know. And um, so it's, it's good to, to somehow, it's good to make these films. Um, oh, absolutely. And do it. And it's now with, the digital revolution making uh, films has really come down. The cost of making films is really. Uh, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's huge, right? Because it yeah, used that, to be, I mean, yeah, you had to rent out a camera stand or, you know, if you knew how to actually shoot under a camera and thread that stuff. But the film stock and all this, you know, 
the the artwork itself and then shooting it under the camera the time that it takes to do that and then taking all this stuff you know if you have to do any editing adding a soundtrack to it all this stuff and just to come up with the the negative you know yeah well when i got to new york uh i was still it was still film was was the way to go that was the way to do animation was to shoot it on film and I, uh, I did that for uh, for about almost 10 years. I was working uh, for clients and shoot, renting Oxberries and uh, shooting on, on 16 or 35 and, you know, shooting late at night to save money on the, on the rental of the Oxberry and going to Times Square at like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, dropping off the film and then picking it up the next day and threading it up. And I mean, it was, Oh my God. I mean, I, sometimes I tell my students about this when they complain about it. It's like, Oh, come on. You, yeah. you guys have it. So easy. I, I don't, don't start with me. I mean, God. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, and then you get a hair in the gate or some scratches on the film and then you have to reshoot it. And it's, you know, you, you can lose your shirt if you're not careful. I mean, oh yeah. So, it, I, I really, I you know I don't miss those days at all. I really don't. Right. Yeah. Did you did you have? I'm sure you had an Oxbury over in uh, RISD, right? To shoot stuff. Yeah, they had, they had a couple of them. Yeah, they had a couple of them, and we also had something called a Four Ox Animation Stand, which was another a competitor to the Oxbury, and that was a not a very good camera. It was a stand that was kind of clunky, and you know you didn't want to shoot on the Four Ox if you could if you could. You can help, <laughs> right? When I think they, yeah. When you were when you were in school doing these films, because did you do a, like a, a film a year over there for the four years, or? It's, yeah, I made two films uh, sophomore year that were sixteen millimeter. One was uh, called Wham Bam Thank You Clam. That was a stop motion claymation that was uh, two minutes long, mm -hmm. and that one turned out pretty well. It was shown at the film forum for two weeks by janet maslin of the new york times actually it was my sophomore film and then um and then i made another film called new york city rhapsody which was hand-drawn 2d animation that was wasn't as good um it was about a trip i made to new york city which in a way was kind of a precursor to the film i eventually made about new york but right uh, and then i made a uh, then i made a couple little films there and the, but then my, my thesis film was called The Viscera, which I made. I started my late junior year and finished uh, senior senior year, and that was the ten minute stop motion cutout film, two D cutout film. Mm -hmm. And that that film got me won some awards and got me some attention. It's very disturbing, very d dark, and very it was horrific film. My parents hated it. <laughs> I think it had a lot to do with me not going to CalArts because they were like, "We're, we're not going to, we're not going to encourage this anymore. You know, this is you're going to make more films like that. You can just forget it." Wow. You know, but wow. It was. Uh, I went. I, I kind of went a little too far with that film, but I'm very proud of it. And uh, uh, you know, it, it uh, uh, got me. You know, once it got into some very big festivals, and I got a got a, you know, a NIFA grant, a New York Foundation for the Arts grant, based on that. Wow, very hard grants to get in New York City. Mm -hmm. the The way you're talking about this stuff, you were experimenting with a lot of different in the medium of animation, but you were experimenting with all these different techniques, so stop motion and clay, and 
Was yeah, that? Well, that was the. Yeah, that's the way they they taught. It. And you know, as sophomore year, they had Yvonne Anderson taught a class. It was like called. It was like a two D class in the two D animation techniques in the fall, and then in the in the spring, it was uh, stop motion, uh, three dimensional techniques with stop motion. Right. So, so that's what that was the way it set up. And then, uh, then junior year it was called um, animation two or something, and it was just sort of. Uh, it was more of an exper- an experimental animation one year program where you uh, the whole focus was to find uh, it was it was taught by this woman named Amy Kravitz and it was about how she had, she taught animation from this very spiritual metaphysical place <laughs> and all about trying to find your your inner vision through a series of lessons that she would she would um, give us each week and uh, we would. Uh, they didn't have enough light tables in those days, so we had uh, we were animating on pads of tracing paper, and then shooting them on a Oxberry or on a uh, Bolex. Right, and then we would shoot the pen- we develop our own pencil test with a uh, uh, we would shoot on high con film and thread the unload the, the the Bolexes or the magazine from the Oxberry in a uh, in a in a dark room in a, in a, in a, and then in a um, and then thread it onto something called a Kimmelman reel, mm-hmm. and, and drop it, drop it in the developer, and develop our own film, mm-hmm. and then th- hang it out to dry on a clothesline. Wow! Sixteen. It was black and white high con film, and then we thread it up and, and look at our pencil tests. That's very that's neat. How we did it. I think that's how they used to do it at, at the studios too. They would just shoot. I think like Snow White when they did Snow White. Snow White was yeah, shot they, on a. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, high I, contrast. Yeah, yeah, it was very. Yeah, it looked like it from when I look at those old pencil tests online of uh, the male pilot and uh, Mickey's fire brigade. It looks you can see the, the little splotches and the, the, the chemicals on the pencil test. You know. Yeah. Uh, that's that's how we did it. It was a good. You know, they really showed you at RISD, you know, how to make a film from beginning to end, and then we had to do our own A and B. Negative. We had to do cut our own negative. We did our own what's called A and B rolling at RISD. Wow. Where we glue the negative together yeah. using a hot sensor. And then that goes to the lab in New York City. It was like launching the space shuttle in those days. <laughs> film yeah. For the, for, the, for the senior animation show. I mean, it was, I, I'm a, I think I almost had a nervous breakdown uh, senior year. I was just, a, I was. I was a mess. I mean, I, I made a this ten minute stop motion film shot on ones mm-hmm. on an very with camera moves. You know, right? We we didn't have a computer. Uh, we didn't have a computer motion controlled. We didn't have a computer controlled Oxberry. So you had to you had to calculate. You had to figure out how to do the camera moves with through with math. You know, with yeah. Calculate. If I, if I recall those those cameras, they had like a meter. On the side, almost like a, like almost like a, a car, like an odometer, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a certain number of numbers, you know. Yeah. You know, you, you, you could slow out or of a, of a start position or end position. You turn it so many numbers, a little more and a little less, a little less, a little less, a little less, and you'd have a camera. You know. Yeah, you'd have I to. Mean, you had to be a mathematician to figure out all this stuff. I know. I can't believe I even, 
I, 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 it's just insane. I mean, it's so easy now to do these things. Um, oh, I know. My God. I mean, it's, but I mean, it is, but it's still computer. So if you're not, if you're, if you're, some people are, are ludites and they're afraid of computers and they don't know, they're afraid to learn software. They're, 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 the whole thing is a mystery to certain people of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Um, even young people, I, t- you know, I teach now and they, they have a hard time with them. Um, with the computer right now. Um, I, th- I think it's a fear of doing something uh, incorrectly. I think it's a fear of failure. And some I, and you have that with anybody. You know, it doesn't have to be computers. It could be anything. They just won't attempt something because they're afraid they're going to fail and screw it up. Well, there's, there's good reason to, to... I mean, it's hard to do. It's hard to make a good animated film. It's uh, mm-hmm. easily make a bad one if you're Everybody makes a, you know, it's very easy to make a bad film, especially if you're working by yourself. There's nobody to tell you that your idea is bad. You know, you just. <laughs> well, you know, if you, if, if, you, if you look at what Hollywood's doing, you know, right, in Hollywood, you got all these right people now. that don't know what they're doing. You know, look at Steven Spielberg made Howard the Duck, or was that George Lucas? Or George something? Lucas. And nobody. It was a terrible idea, but there were, he, you know, he made that's he made it right after the success of Star Wars, or mm-hmm. and everybody was like, oh, he's the, you know, so that there's um, <laughs> everybody makes a clunker. Look at Hollywood. Say this is when all these bad movies get made because they often get made right after a success, right? Or that success, and then they're like, oh, you, we'll give you a blank check. You can do anything you want. And that's usually when these, you know, films like Ishtar and. <laughs> you know, get made in 1941. That was the Spielberg movie that was terrible. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what we're talking about, but uh, <laughs> well, we're just talking about good things and bad things, and the fear of failure. And it's easy to get off on the wrong foot and go down the wrong, go off, you know, start making something that's it, uh, that you're sort of. Um, you think is great, and then you realize you wake up one day and you go, "Oh my God, this is terrible! What is, what was I thinking?" Right. Oh, but then, but then there is also the fear of not completing it. Like maybe it is okay, maybe you know, and so you carry on. You got to finish it and just learn from your mistakes and just get it out there and say, "Okay, you know." Right. I want to. I mean, you don't want to be one of those people. Spending your whole life working on one film. Yeah, right. R- Richard Williams did that, didn't he? Yes, and there, you know, there's there are others. I won't mention any names, but. <laughs> so, okay, so you you did the four years of RISD. You graduated. What was the next step for your career? Because now you had a. What are you going to do? Look for work? Or are you going to try to work independently? Or what happened? What was the next. Depth, but what did you say? The next there. step after RISD. Oh, oh step. Yeah, I got to I got to uh, New York, and I, I I landed a job. My first job in New York City before I moved to New York, I got. Um, you know, I had this this father who was very very. Um, you know, he grew up in Flatbush. You know, he didn't like the idea of me moving there, and, uh, and he was nervous about it. And he said, "You can't move there unless you get offered." full-time job in animation so in 1984 the country was in a recession there weren't a lot of you know the economy was just not not going well and no. there were not a lot of jobs there was this one 
So I, I got that movie directory. It was the movie, it was that yellow book mm-hmm. thing, movie industry directory, and it had all the animation studios listed with their addresses and their phone numbers in there. And I got a hold of that book, and I mailed out, you know, 50, 100 uh, snail mail resumes with cover letters. And um, mm-hmm. one of the studios I contacted was this place called Charlex that's uh, and they were the one studio that was actually making a lot of money and they were putting all the other studios out of business and they were they were they were high high tech um, uh, video post production house mm-hmm. one inch post production house that was also doing motion graphics uh, and they were doing a lot of um, animatics for Madison Avenue and so they so they got my resume and I don't know what they saw in it but this guy read it and he said he called me in Washington DC and he said we're very impressed with your resume if everything on here is true we'd like to have you come up for an interview and show mm-hmm. us your work and so I did and he I all my films were on 16 millimeter and he he had he had been he had, he had been a student at uh, the Rochester Institute of Technology and he had his mm-hmm. still had his and Howe projector so he brought it to work the day of my interview when I threaded up my RISD films and they loved my films. Everybody at the Charlex loved my work. And even the peop- the ad agency people who were paying uh, $500,000 an hour to edit a TV commercial stopped what they were doing and came into this big uh, soundstage mm-hmm. and where, where my films were, were playing on a, on a, on a rotation, on a, on, a, on a Bell and Howe projector, right. 16 mil. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the afternoon, the, the uh, uh, this guy uh, Alex, who ran the studio, said, "We'd like to offer you a full-time job, uh, you know, as a uh, working at our studio, and you can start as soon as you can move up to New York." And so I, that's how I came to got to New York. And then I got on the phone. I it was in the lobby of their little there, and it was a big stu- animation studio. It was right at Two West Forty Fifth Street. Mm-hmm. I called my phone. I said, "Guess what, Dad? You, you found that full-time job in animation. Looks like I'm moving to New York." And I couldn't believe it. it really angry. <laughs> All the men of my word. If I promise, if I said that you, you know, you you, you did it, Willie. I got to give you credit. You you, you found a found that full time job in animation in New York. And I, it was like finding a needle in a haystack. I mean, it was just. I too. Mean, <laughs> I did. You know, I didn't have. So that guy, I was there for about a year. That I worked uh, at the. I I, got, I worked at the Ink Tank briefly as a, and then I worked at a couple other. Peter Wallach Animation Studio it was Eli Wallach's son, Peter. Mm-hmm. I had a and I worked there, and then I uh, then I, I ended up animating children's books for the home video market for about six years, where I produced animation animation shot on uh, Oxberries. Um, and mm-hmm. did that six years, and that that was it was a, it was good, but for six years, and it, the money was not very good, and um, right, I got some experience, you know. <laughs> working but the films were just you know, it was like camera moves on children's books that kind of thing right was, with probably a little animation thrown I in did, like you know yeah i did i would show a little eye blinks little head jiggles you know but it was just awful you know and um, uh i was about you know at my wits end couldn't animate another damn you know elves in the shoemaker or parent <laughs> artists or right just, I could. Just, no, I can't do this anymore. Please don't. Don't ask me to do this. Mm-hmm. And finally, I, I uh, 
somebody, this woman I went to art school with, I called her up and said, I'm, you know, I need a, I'm looking for a gig. And she said, oh, there's this studio in Times Square. And they're starting to, they're staffing up right now. And they're working on a new show called Beavis and Butthead. Wow. And it's 1993. And I thought, oh, what the hell is that? And she said, oh, just call them up. You know, they're, 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 they're in Times Square. And here's the number. Here's the person to talk to. And I called them up. And they, they actually knew who I was. Mm-hmm. And they said, you come in. And if you can draw Beavis and Butthead, which I didn't think would be. Well, I didn't even know what they looked like. So I, I got there. I didn't know what they looked like. And I drew them. Right. I said, okay, we'll try you out for a couple of weeks as a storyboard revisionist. And, um, and then, um, you know, that wasn't too hard. And then, uh, then I, uh, I did that and I got promoted to a, a layout artist. And then I eventually I got promoted to a storyboard artist. And then I worked on the movie. And, wow. I got to even on the side, I actually got to design some of the characters on the show, which was something I did kind of um, informally. And I was not ever credited. Right. As a character. But that was always kind of fun. I liked when they, when Mike judge would say, Hey Willie, come into my office. I want you to design the, the phone sex lady. And, you know, and I was like, okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> and I, that was, I enjoyed that. Right. Wow. Happy days over at uh, MTV Animation. It was it was fun in the beginning, and I met I made a lot of met a lot of people. Like that was my first uh, first time ever working on a on a TV series, working in the industry. You know, and, um, and I learned a lot from it. I worked with some great animators. Made a lot of I've, I've made some really good friends who I'm still close with today, and, and uh, um. And then I, um, I, uh, you know, and it was nice because I didn't have to, I didn't have my own business. I didn't have to scramble for work. You know, I just go in, it was a nine to five kind of job. And I, for like five years, I just would walk in and draw these buttheads. That, that was my next question. How many years did you spend over there? About five years. I think maybe a little shy of five years. And I, right. I, was it steady it was, or was it? Did you work for like a couple of months and then they, they kind of laid you off and then brought you back? There'd always be a hiatus for, you know, four to six weeks, you know, and then that was always, I always welcomed that because I, I could then travel. I could go to Europe or go somewhere and, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of or work on my own stuff. And, um, and, uh, and I, I did, I started developing this um, character called Mr. Smoothie. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, so I, one of the great things about working at Beavis and Butthead was the, uh, you know, we were producing the show in-house at MTV. We were not a studio, uh, you know, it was not a studio run by, you know, uh, an independent contractor. It was, a, it was a, we were in-house at MTV. We were down the hall mm-hmm. from the executives, the, the, the MTV development mm-hmm. guys, the next Beavis and Butthead. So we all thought we were the next the next Mike judge, you know, right. And that we, so we thought, okay, they encouraged us to develop shows. So we, I started writing these scripts and, um, started developing this character called Mr. Smoothie about this, uh, ice cream cone is melting and it wants to reproduce. And he's looking for a woman who's ovulating. <laughs> I don't know how I came up with this, but anyway, so I, um, now, I Mr. Now, Mr. Smoothie looks similar to, uh, some other character. 
Mr. Softy, the mobile ice cream truck. Yes. It was a parody of the uh, mobile ice cream truck. A parody. Right. I changed the parody. Yes. Yeah. It, uh, but I it was great. It was great. Anyway, so I, I didn't get anywhere with the scripts. I didn't get anywhere with the pitch Bibles. Uh, and um, so I, um, I said, all right. I, around that time, I started investing in computer equipment. I started in around the mid-90s. Like a lot of my coworkers on Beavis, uh, I started buying. I bought my first computer. I learned After Effects, and I started experimenting with um, uh, After Effects and had it, you know, I learned how to make a do sort of digital puppetry with After Effects. And I, 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 I thought maybe this is the way to do Mr. Smoothie. I saw it always as a stop motion thing mm-hmm. with puppets, but I figured out a way to do it in After Effects. So I made a two minute short. And um, when I finished it, after I left MTV, I was working at that point at Jumbo Pictures. And I finished this two-minute little t- teaser, and people loved it. So this is great. And then I got the name of uh, this uh, these producers at Comedy Central. And one day on my lunch break, I went up. Uh, I was working down in Soho at Jumbo, and I went up during my lunch break and dropped off a VHS tape of Mr. Smoothie to um, to Comedy Central. They're right around where Clump Circle is, and um, they. They loved it. Within uh, two hours of me dropping off the tape, they called me at my landline in Brooklyn. I didn't have a cell phone at that point. I called into my mm-hmm. my office, and they said, "We want it. We just saw Mr. Smoothie, and we wanted to talk to you right away about Mr. Smoothie. We're you know we're doing a, a pilot for, and we we want to use Mr. Smoothie in our pilot that we're creating." I couldn't believe it. I was just I I, I nearly died. Well, you're a talent. You're a talented guy. And you have a, a lot of very unique ideas. So well, when you when you showed when you showed me this thing, Mister Smoothie, you do the voice of Mister Smoothie, which is kind of fun. Um, so, do the voice now, Mister Smoothie. <laughs> I serve ice cream out of my out of my head, and uh, <laughs> uh, I belong the interstate or along. Route sixty six, and uh, you know, so that's the uh, that's the voice, right? Yeah, yeah, it was weird and wonderful, and uh, Very scary and creepy. I still show it to my students, and they, you know, when I when I start teaching, you know, usually the first day, I talk a little bit about what I'm doing, and sometimes I'll show them my my work. Mm-hmm. And Mister, minutes long. Every time I show that to my my, my college students. They go crazy. They say, "Oh my God, Professor, we would totally watch that." I don't know what, why, why did you know? Why didn't they? Why wasn't that a show? And I was like, "That's what I'd like to know." And that's what I'd like to know why I'm out here in Montclair, New Jersey, teaching you guys where I should be in Hollywood. You know, and I, <laughs> am I bitter? No, I'm not bitter. I, no, I, <laughs> but you know, um, the one the one good thing about. Um, living today is the fact that you have these resources. You have uh, YouTube and you have, uh, I think you post all your stuff on what, Vimeo? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You have these resources where you can actually post your work and then it's just, you have to be creative about letting people know about it. 
I think the, the you know, just these outlets allow you to be seen now, whereas, you know, you didn't have that 30 years ago. You didn't have, you know, you basically you did a film, you had the film, and the only way to get that scene is to either, you know, raid some festival somewhere and have them show it, or you'd have to send it, you know, your your only copy of this thing, or if you had a couple of copies, you send it to people, or VHS, and hope that they actually watch it. Yeah, back back in back in those days, it was like the Spike and Mike Sick and Twisted, which is where the MTV uh, executives first saw Beavis, Mike Judge's Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, well, that was uh, Frog Baseball, I think. Frog Baseball, and they had before Sick and Twisted, uh, Spike and Mike. They had the uh, the Ron Ron Apple's uh, tournament of animation. I think his name was Ron Apple, and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, or anything else, but anyway, they had these different things that would tour college campuses. You know, yeah, would come around. That's how you got your film seen, right? Um, that just made it a lot easier. But on the other hand, there's kind of a lot of there's some now anybody can do animation. Anybody who's got a little Procreate or a laptop with Adobe Animator, what anybody can do animate now. There's just so much stuff out there now. Right. Back in our day, when we were in our twenties, there was very few schools were teaching animation, and there was not that many. There weren't that many animated films getting made every year. You know? mm-hmm. So it's sort of, a, in some ways, it was, it was. If you did something good, it was easy to stand out because there weren't. There wasn't a lot being done. Right. And there weren't a lot of people going into it to to learn it. You know, I think yeah. Cal, Cal Arts had like a you know they had a class maybe twenty people in it. You know, for a lot of it wasn't hard to get into the CalArts experimental program in those in the 80s because there weren't the undergrad schools that were teaching animation feeding into it. There weren't that many schools that could feed into CalArts. Right. Uh, now there's just it's, it's so hard to get into the that MFA program at CalArts. It's just yeah. talented to say and you, it, you know, and you have something new to say then, you know, the world will, will take notice and will pay attention. And that's true in any art form, whether it's music or painting or sculpture. or any, if, you're, if you have something that hasn't been said, uh, you, you, you'll, somebody will, will take notice of it, usually, you know, even if it's, it could be. Uh, it's just you have to have something to say. Right. And that's all there is to it. If you do anything, if, you do, if, you, if your work is derivative, and it looks like everything else that's been done before. It's historically, it's just not important. Nobody cares. It's, it's you're, you're, you're just saying what's already been said. Mm-hmm. So when I'm when I do something, I always try to, you know, I try to make a contribution. And I try to say something that will that hasn't that needs to be said that isn't being said. Right. And uh, using new technology because that if, if every time something new comes along, new technology with computer animation makes it possible to now say things that haven't been said before mm-hmm. in a bad way. So um, in, a, in a visually different way, hopefully yeah, so take tech, computer animation, you know, when it, you know, when Pixar was used, came out with Toy Story, it was great. You know, they were just trying to create realism, uh, idealized kind of realism, you know, uh, but you can take that same software and you can you can experiment with it and do other things with it and, and not um, 
and, and say something original and new, you know. And mm-hmm. eventually, this, these the this these softwares will get get in the hands of artists, and they'll do they'll they'll make new statements with it that haven't been said, and that's that's what's um, that's what happens. Right. Actually. Interesting. Yeah. What when you uh, finished up with Beavis and Butthead? You, did you have a little bit of a lag time before you went over to Jumbo? No, I didn't. I jumped. I went right from Beavis to uh, Jumbo. There was from. I mean, it was literally like I had. I think maybe I had a few days off, but I mean, it was. Uh, I, I was supposed to work. I'd worked on Daria for a season, and then mm-hmm. as a clipboard artist, and then uh, I was supposed to work on a show called Downtown. That was. I heard about that. That was at Chris Pernowski's show that eventually ran for one season but it was delayed mm-hmm. uh, and i <laughs> so i didn't want to i needed to you know, something to do so i uh i got an offer to work at um i got hired at jumbo to work which was owned by disney at the time and, right um, and they were doing the disney dogs and i worked on the dis the dogs first movie it was a animated feature right and i worked storyboard artist kind of right Oh, that was that was uh, that was a that was a really nice little studio. I, I enjoyed the people there. Where was Jumbo down? That was downtown too, right? That was down uh, Soho. It's down in Soho, off uh, Spring Street, off Sixth um, Avenue, Spring Street. I think it was Barrick Street, Barrick and Spring over there. Right. And there were quite a few former MTV people working there, so I knew a lot of the people there. So that was okay. I mean, that was fun. Yeah. What was the turnaround like on a like you were doing storyboard on that, right? I, I was revising storyboards on that. Oh, okay. Doug's first movie. Yeah. Right. They, they, there were too many. I think we had too many artists working in that studio. There was a lot of downtime, so we were just. I ended up. I remember. I I had so much free time. I was creating these like posted galleries in my little workstation and i had like sort of developing my own stuff you know right right that was also right after i finished mr smoothie and there was i was i had a six month option with comedy central so everybody was on i was on pins and needles wondering if i was going to be the next matt stone and trey pat parker for comedy central and everybody Everyone thought for sure this was going to go be a, a series, you know, because uh, everybody loved Mr. Smoothie. And sure. So I was kind of sitting there working at this show, thinking, oh, God, it's only a matter of time before I get to leave this place. <laughs> Work on Mr. Smoothie. This was, I thought it was going to happen. Everyone thought it was going to happen. Yeah. Was, I mean, we all had to be sort of, we had to keep quiet about it, too, because uh, I had signed that Disney contract that said everything I, I drew was owned by Disney, but there was something called an exclusionary list that you could add to your contract. It said everything but these things, you know, so I think I, I wrote that on there. Right. I still trust the contract, and I was like, I, nobody, everybody kept, you know, kept their lips sealed, you know, about Willie's Mr. Smoothie thing. So it was sort of this this secret at the studio. Um, Isn't that crazy, though, that's, that they're basically saying they own your mind while you're working for them? Day and night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they, it's kind of silly, but uh, yeah. So you know, nothing happened. Uh, I never got 
in any trouble or you know when i had the contract with comedy central it wasn't any i was still working there right but it was the option i was a six-month option which meant comedy central had six months to decide whether they wanted to produce it as a show or, or right. include other show they're doing yeah so what what happened after how long were you jumbo working on that on doug I worked there for, I think it was a, at least a uh, couple of years uh, mm-hmm. um, on a couple of shows. And uh, um, and then uh, <laughs> that came to an end. And Disney stopped there. They did not renew their contract with Jumbo, and they, but they own the name Jumbo. So the studio had to come up with a new name for their studio. So they, they came up with the name Cartoon Pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working there when that happened. Uh, and then um, I don't know. They they eventually the studio got smaller and smaller, and I I uh, eventually left and worked uh, various other places. Uh, right. It was around. I guess it was in uh, 2005. I worked with you on uh, in Jersey on the movie. Yeah. Yeah, with Christopher Reeve. It was Superman. It was in a. Uh, as we know, was in a wheelchair, and that was a, that was an interesting experience. And uh, that was uh, I don't know if you want to. What do you remember about that? that <laughs> I remember a lot of stuff about it. I remember c- coming into the place and going, "My God, you know, it's uh, uh, so." To tell the st- tell the story here, basically, Willie and I worked on a movie about a boy and his baseball. And it was a talking baseball. And so we I didn't know anything about it coming in. Uh, and I think the first day I was there, there was about six people there that were hired on as storyboard artists. And I think you were one of them. And you were one of them. And But we had a bunch of other people in there. We had next Disney guy. And and uh, I think we had Ray De Silva. Is that right? Silva? Ray De Silva. Do you remember? Is that, is that what his name was, or he was an old, an older gentleman? He, oh, oh, that's right. He did. We did have him briefly. I forgot about that. Yeah, yes. he had authored uh, the Kodak book on animation back in the seventies. There was right. We had, he was on our team. You know, I completely forgot that. But yeah, we had um, Rich Coder. We had Seth Feinberg. Ilya was our our storyboard supervisor. Yes, we had, we had um, this guy from the. Orlando Disney Studio. Um, yeah, uh, he was very good, and uh, and a couple others, and uh, we uh, that was a that was a very strange experience. And it was all in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Newark, New Jersey. I had to take two trains. To, I had to take two trains to get there. I think you had to take two trains to get there. Take a subway to the path or to Jersey Transit. Right. It's hard to commute, but it was. Anyway, the movie eventually came out. It wasn't very good. And, uh, yeah, all I all I remember about that experience was coming in that first day, sitting side by side, and I felt like, my God, now I know what a sweatshop is, you know. And I, I mean, it's nowhere like a sweatshop, but uh, but we were sitting next to each other, getting pieces of a script that it was not very good, and drawing on these little sheets of paper, and I was like. Yeah, they um, had those ads, and then they, we had to put the numbers on all the panels. That, that they 
it was it was kind of crazy because they felt like oh they're deconstructing the animation medium you know for features do it their own way and it was just uh, like you said it was a very weird experience it was very strange and uh, yeah tragically died during the the production of the film uh, yeah chris reeve died it went from bad to worse and then i remember one day we were sitting there and i don't know if you want to yeah no go ahead no this is important i think you, you were you're such a um a fan of animation we were sitting there and one day uh this parade of storyboard artists from disney walked in they and you were like you looked at me you're like uh-oh this doesn't look good for us and it was like <laughs> it was like johnson or Rand, randy uh, a bunch of disney artists walk in and and put up in a hotel, and they were going to basically replace us. Yeah, they're going to take over the studio and move it to California. And basically, we were, uh, well, I won't mention, there was a producer who they brought in. Who would, well, he passed uh, away. He passed away now, so you can say who that is, I think. Ron uh, well, Ron Tip. Oh, I forgot about that. No, there's a woman named uh, Janet Healy. Yeah. Who had shark tales. And she was the one who kind of got in there and said, okay, we need, we got to bring in, we got to get some script doctors. We got to bring in some Disney storyboard guys. We got to bring in, we got to get this right to ship. The ship is, you know, we got to turn this ship around because it's going nowhere. You know, and she started just, you know, she, I mean, they had billions and billions in cash, mm -hmm. no debt this company, and they were able to buy whoever they wanted. And uh, sure. they did. It wasn't enough to really make a good movie. The movie was was uh, ill-fated, I think, from the very beginning. But at least, uh, you know, it was a company that was trying to compete with Disney and Pixar and, and DreamWorks and thought they didn't realize how hard it, it is to do that. No. You know? No, it was, uh, you know, it's not, it wasn't the crew that we had. It was the people constructing the script. I just felt that that's, where the the weak point was right there because we had we had some talented people there we had some very funny people you know they just threw everybody away and just said nah we're just going to take it to california and just do this thing and um and that's what they did and we Eventually, i think yeah but then they put us in development so we we were they kept us around for a while and we were developing i thought they treated us pretty well all things considered and they they did they did, they, did. And they you know they told us they did everything by the book and um you know maybe we could the salary could have been better but i i it was a very strange chapter in my life i'll never forget it and uh it mm -hmm. bizarre but it was when it ended it was like fine you know whatever i don't know <laughs> i remember i i think i remember the last day when we we left and uh, I took the train back, and I think I grabbed a beer with you at oh, Penn no, Station. The, the Iron District or something. We had this big dinner, this big lunch. Yeah. Still there. And, uh, all, and that was, I remember that. And I guess I do remember having a beer with you somewhere. And then, yeah. but, you know, we, one of the nice things was that we, they remember that big, um, it was in Times Square, that, fun, that spinal cord research uh fundraiser for chris reeves organization i forgot what it was called but we went we all had to rent a tux and we went to this 
black tie event. Did you go to that? Or maybe you didn't go to that. I don't know if I went to that. I don't remember going to that. He was the one who didn't go. But we all rented a tux, and, we, and, and it's like all these movie stars were there. We had a big, it was like the Golden Globes. We had a whole table. Like we were right up in the front of the stage. And right. The movie, and Paul Simon sang, and all sorts of, everybody was there. Chris Reeves' widow was there. This was right after he had died. Right. That was really, that was, I'll never forget that. That was yeah, I'm trying to think where I was for that. I know I was. I know when Chris Reeve died, I was home. I taken off. Well, I took the week off. Probably a month or so after he died, and it was a yeah. I don't know why you didn't go, but for some reason you decided not to go because you you would have. Um, I, I yes, you weren't there for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, you would you would remember this, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it was a big. You know, I would know. Uh, no, I remember other things we did. Uh, it, there, there's one story I have to tell. Yes. Um, when we were developing, when we were, I guess they wanted to immerse us into Yankee Stadium because this movie, The Boy and His Baseball, they wanted to uh, give us the flavor of Yankee Stadium. Do you remember this? Well, they, there was a little league, uh, it was a, a minor league baseball diamond near the office building and they took us they took us to the are you talking about that no they no they they wanted to take us over to yankee stadium for a game to yeah, get the to get the flavor of yankee stadium we did go to a game didn't we or we did i remember that big uh, yeah okay well i remember i remember this because it was crazy um they oh, had yeah. they had one of their drivers from the place, the studio. Oh, right. We, we, we sideswiped somebody and the guy was, <laughs> he didn't care. He's like, we got to get to the game. He, he practically ran over people because we were, we were running late or something. So I, I thought I was in a, a death mobile because the way this guy was driving, he was driving crazy. And we, we all crowded into a van to go to Yankee stadium to see this game. And it was mandatory. You had to see this game. Cause I guess because they had, seen some documentary of Disney, you know, and, uh, you know, Disney with Lion King, they had to go to, like, Africa to kind of experience that, right? And then, you know, and for every movie, they kind of do that. They send a team to, like, China to do something, you know, to get the flavor of the place so that they could do the backgrounds and stuff, be influenced by it, right? So they they got it in their head that we're going to go to Yankee stadium because we're going to get the flavor of the original Yankee stadium, but we weren't in the original Yankee stadium. We're in the updated version of Yankee stadium. But anyway, we crowded into this van and I don't know, they had this crazy guy driving and he took off like a rocket and he was zooming down the highway in Jersey up to the George Washington bridge and went right through the toll. And just, you don't remember, do you remember this? Do you remember the crazy, this was a crazy drive. I do remember this. I completely blocked this out. <laughs> but I do remember, I think he sideswiped somebody and, and he was, he should have stopped and got out of the car and he didn't do that. And he just was, it, I felt like I was in a, like the love bug movie or something or some <laughs> movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or that movie with, um, 
What's up, Doc? With Barbara Streisand and uh, Ryan Ryan O'Neill. Yeah, that would have been a more interesting animated film. Was the was us that 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 wild van ride to Yankee Stadium? Would have been funny. <laughs> yeah, be a funny. Be very funny. Anyway, I just oh. remember arriving at Yankee Stadium and just hearing all the sirens of police cars and stuff. It was like we better get out of here or else we're going to be witnesses. And we just got inside. Yeah, I remember that. That was uh, the whole thing was bizarre. <laughs> the whole thing was strange. That whole strange experience. Crew was in the ended up in the trash, and because the script was not very good, and uh, we, uh, I remember one of the storyboard artists said, you know, everything we're doing is going to end up in the trash. Yeah, and I worked on that thing for. How many months were we there? Was it six months or something like that? Or I think we were there for a full year. It wasn't a full year. I think it was like it was nine like months. Nine months. I don't think it was a full year. Okay. But it was quite a long time. And everything we did never, ever saw the light, never got on the screen. Nothing. Yeah. There's, so. there's, there's one thing I remember doing, which uh, I may cut this out. <clears throat> I did a, I, they gave me a section of this movie with the, I guess it was, uh, you had gangsters in the movie and and you had one guy that was kind of like, you know, it was kind of like, uh, you know, the short thug and then you had the big dumb guy, you know, the dumb thug and they would do something stupid and basically get whacked over the head every time he said something stupid. It was something out of like Warner Brothers, you know, and so it was scripted that way, and so I, I was going to have fun with it. You know, it's slapsticky, and somewhere along the way, I realized because Christopher Reeve was going to look at this and he's going to review it, and I was like, "This is not. This is not going to fly." He's going to cut all this stuff out. And my reasoning was that he had, you know, he was paralyzed because he had a, a bad polo accident. And uh, and I just thought, well, he's going to be sensitive to this. He's probably going to pull this stuff out, but I'm just going to do it anyway. So I did it. And sure enough, when they came back, they said, yeah, he's taking all this. This is out. This is out. This is out. All the physical stuff was out. And uh, And I was like, that's kind of the. For me, that was kind of the fun of the cartoon, you know, or the the show was doing some of the slapstick stuff, and he hated it. They paid us, and you know, it was a gig, and yeah, whatever. I don't, I you know, I, I, I we still got credit on it. Yeah, I know we're we're <laughs> credited as a storyboard artist on the it's a story to tell. That's what it is, you know. You can tell people, you know, yeah, yeah. What'd you, what'd you do after that? I, you know, basically I, I did some stuff for Saturday night live and then kind of left the business for a little while. And well, I started, I, I did some, I did a job, some work for Yo Gaba Gaba, which was a Nick, Nick junior show. And then, um, mm-hmm. worked on, I worked on various, uh, freelance jobs. And then I, uh, in 2009, I started teaching, um, a couple of art schools, and I started. I discovered I love teaching, and I'm I'm really I'm really good at teaching animation. So that was. So I've been teaching now for 15 years. In 2016, mm-hmm. um, 
I, I made a, uh, I released an animated short called New York City Sketchbook, which um, uh, is probably the best thing I've ever done. It seems to be. I, st- I still um, get asked to screen it. I've been, it still um, gets, I, you know, every, I, I, it's been, it screens in Europe from time to time at various mm-hmm. festivals over there. I get asked to do, um, I get uh, booked on speaking engagements where I, I talk about the film and, and the process and how I made it. So um, that was um, uh, that was something I did that kind of changed my life in a really good way. It's leading to a lot of opportunities for me. And, uh, what what I find interesting about all the stuff you do, it, it just has um, it doesn't feel like anybody else's film. It feels like something you've done. It, they all feel very personal, which is great. Um, yeah. New York City sketchbook is amazing in a lot of different ways. It really captures the flavor of New York. And that's just, you know, that that's my point of view. But just looking at it, looks like it's something that you did sketch out in a sketchbook and then you brought to life, but really captures that New York City flair. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, what happened was I... Um it was, you know, I, uh, I, it was, I needed to make another independent short film. I didn't know what I was, what to make a film about. And uh, one, one day, I had this sort of epiphany or that aha moment. And I, I, um, it was, um, it was a memorial. I went to this uh, party in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It's Memorial Memorial Day in mm-hmm. probably two thirteen or something like that. And I, uh, I went and I drew all the people. I, I, I. Uh, one of the things I started doing around 2010 was I, um, I obsessively started keeping a visual diary, a sketchbook. I started drawing people in New York City in public places, and um, and one of the reasons why I did this is one of the when going back to uh, to working on that movie in, in Newark. One of the, the the top storyboard guys that we worked with was this guy named Rich Coder, mm-hmm. and he all on the subway going to work every day because I, I, I said to him how did you get so good at drawing and you're so good at storyboarding he said well the, he opened up his sketchbook and he showed me and he had these beautiful drawings he did of people on the subway going to work mm-hmm. and I I always remember that I said okay I'm going to do that I'm going to take Rich's advice I'm going to draw every day and keep a little pocket sketchbook and so the the New York City film to get back to that evolved out of the this obsessive need to sketch and draw people from life uh and what happened was after doing this uh for several years i accumulated hundreds of sketches of new yorkers in public places all over new york city mm-hmm. hundreds thousands of drawings of people in parks and cafes and subways everywhere mm-hmm. and i realized you know i said i said i had this little in, inner dialogue with myself i said willie you're an animator you know i'm an animator You've got all these drawings of New York's New Yorkers that you've been you've been you know you've got hundreds of these drawings. Yes, this is Wooly Wooly. Why don't you make an animated film using all your sketches and and do a sort of an animated sketchbook of New York City? And I said to myself, Yes, that's a great idea, Willie. Why don't you do that? So I I so that's how it all came about. And I I uh, I did a, I, I was at that Memorial Day. Uh, barbecue and i had the i drew all these people at, the, at this uh this outdoor barbecue in the lower in the east village of manhattan mm-hmm. scanned the drawings cut them out in photoshop brought them into after effects into these little camera moves 
And I thought, oh my God, this looks great. I can't believe how good this looks. And then I realized, oh my God, I have a bigger film staring me in the face. Why stop here? I'm just scratching the surface. I can make a whole animated film about New York City. Mm-hmm. And that, that's so I did. And then I, um, I did a Kickstarter and I raised the money to make the film. And I had a friend who I went to art school with who was really good with uh, this software called Cinema 4D, which is a 3D software. Mm-hmm. And he basically gave me the software and showed me how, gave me some pointers on how to use it. And I, I was able to create this 3D matrix of New York City and stick my drawings and animated se- sequences into this 3D software and make it look kind of seamless. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I figured out how to do that, I was off to the races and I knew wow. that it had the potential of being a very good film. And, and uh, it, it, it did turn out extremely well. And it's led to all sorts mm-hmm. of opportunities for me. So It's it's won uh, a bunch of awards, hasn't it? It has, yeah. It's been, it's been shown uh, all over the world. And, uh, and it... Um, it is, uh, it's not about the awards, you know, it's about I, what, you know, it's great when you win awards, but the best thing is when you, you just want your film to be seen. So when you get into a festival, uh, it's an honor just to be, have your film in screen in the festival. So mm-hmm. it, it, um, one of the, the greatest, <laughs> the best experience I had was I, I, um, it showed, it got into quite a few festivals in Europe, but one of the ones was in uh, Oxford, England, where, you know, where Oxford University is. Mm-hmm. And I did the film there because I wanted to go to Oxford. I wanted to go to England and be fun to get the film into a festival in England and then go with, travel with the film. And so I got into this festival in, in Oxford. It was this Oxford International Animation, or it wasn't, a, wasn't an animation festival. It was, a, it was a film festival. So they had animation, was just one of the categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I won best animated short and i also won best film of the whole festival it beat out all the feature films and all the documentaries and all the short live action films it beat all of them it gave me the grand festival that's incredible it's incredible are you you want to give this to a yankee you know we (laughs) kicked you really want me to take this home you know and then they're like oh we want you to have it That was very neat. So that was, yeah, I could, I just put, I was, this is it. but they, there were these judges who uh, just loved my film. They yeah. Thought it was, and it was not, a, it's not, a, you know, the con festival, it was a small festival in, in, in England. And right. Competition wasn't as stiff as what you see at some of these, it's like the uh, Berlin, the Berlin Ollie or the right. con festival. The Toronto, you know, so it's not nonetheless, you know, that that was a I really needed that. It made me really, um, that was a, that was a wonderful. That's still, if if uh, people haven't seen it, where can they see this now? Do they have to go to film festivals or can they see this at home? Well, well you, you can watch the trailer on my website, willieheartland.com, W I L L Y H A R T L E N D. Dot com and you can watch the trailer and if you want to see it um i'll send you a link to the, the 13 it's a 13 minute short film and um, i'll send you a link to it if you really want to see it but it is not really on the internet right now right um, like what, anyway. what's next for willie hartland well i am uh, i'm working on a new film uh 
surrealist uh, story I wrote called The Artichoke, and it's quite a departure from the New York City film. It's a, it's a stop motion 2D cutouts shot on Dragon Frame, which is a uh, stop motion software. Okay. And um, I'm working on this for longer than I care to say. I'm having a little, a little, it's taking me longer than I anticipated, but I'm very happy with the, the new direction it's going in. And uh, it was originally going to be hand drawn, and it just wasn't gelling, it wasn't coming mm-hmm. together that way. So, uh, so I'm working on that, and I'm uh, I'm working on a new, uh, working with a producer now on a, on a, a documentary feature. And I, I don't really want to talk too much about it uh, publicly, but it's this is going great, and uh, and I got this project uh, because of the uh, success of the New York City film. New York City sketchbook. City sketchbook, and he loved it, and he said, you're the guy for this. So so that is what I'm working on right now. Very and, cool. Um, Very cool. Should be. It all goes according to plan. I, I, uh, it'll become a, a feature, and it'll be a lot of work for me. And, um, so very excited about it. Okay. Very good. Hey, Willie, thank you for coming on here. Oh, it was a real, I loved it. Uh, thank you so much. It was great to reconnect. And, uh, yeah. Um, uh, your show is, I have to say, it's just, it's terrific. In fact, I would say it's cartoon terrific. <laughs> any questions or comments about the podcast please email brian at cartoonerific.com your email may be featured in one of our future shows hey thank you willie thank you for spending some time with us and talking about uh, your career uh please check out willie's film you can go to uh willieheartland.com take a look at his credits there and he has some clips from new york city sketchbook please check that out You know, there's some wonderful independent animators out there, and some just work strictly uh, in the commercial field. They're doing commercial projects or they're doing industrials, and then they do a personal film, and they put it out there in film festivals or it could be shown online or whatever, and uh, you should check those out. There's some very interesting things. Uh, One of my particular favorites is uh, it's cartoony, but it it has its own style. It's uh, something called Chief Your Butt's on Fire, and it's uh, by Steve Moore, who's worked for Disney and for many other studios. So it's a a wonderful short film. If you can find it online, uh, I I guarantee you'll like it. I'll try to put it on our uh, uh, Cartoonerific Facebook page. So there you go. Anyway, if you really like what you're listening to, please subscribe and please tell a friend. So anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with more Cartoonerific interviews. So I want you to have a great day. I want you to have an excellent week. And thank you all once again for tuning in. This has been a Cartoonerific Studios presentation. The Cartoonerific Podcast is copyright 2024 by Cartoonerific Studios Incorporated. All rights reserved.